Welcome to the Pod 20, the countdown of the most popular podcasts in the world right now. I'm Graham Mack, and my guests this week include the journalist James Ashton from the podcast Leading with James Ashton. The Pod 20 is heard on podcast radio on DAB in the UK, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms, and as a podcast itself. Into the chart now, and at number 20, The Matt Walsh Show. A no-holds-barred take on today's cultural, religious and political issues. The latest episode is called Stand and Salute the Pride Flag, You Bigots. 19. Behind the Bastards. The podcast about the worst humans in history. This week they ask, What's new with Alex Jones? 18. Sky News Arabia. The podcast from the 24-hour rolling news channel broadcast in the Middle East. 17. On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world. 16. Real Perspective. The podcast that reviews movies and TV shows. Michael Moray is one of the hosts. What podcasts inspire you, Michael? You know, I, I listen to only a few, but they're not usually within uh, this genre when it comes to film criticism. I go and listen to... The closest analogy I can think of is I have a friend who... I went to law school with. He has his own podcast called Believe to See, which is basically about uh, the intersection of faith and the arts. And so he kind of approaches things from like a different direction. Uh, but And it's not just about movies. It's just about things that kind of inspire you about the creative process. So like they have arguments about whether or not, you know, you're pro creating uh, a rough draft or an outline for writing your novel or you're anti writing a rough draft. You're not, and you just kind of see that play out. And I just find that that interesting those discussions. Uh, but then I, I primarily listen to um, a lot of political podcasts. I listen to a lot of history ones. Um, there's there's one that I'm recently going through called the uh, History of Europe Through Battle. And so they're kind of going through like since the Greek era, going through like historical major battles and kind of laying down the stuff around each of them, what led to them. Because I mean, as you know, Graham, we, we talked about this before when you were uh, doing my audio book, that I like history, I'm a history buff. And so that kind of thing, uh, I really enjoy is hearing about history as well. So those kind of things influence me a lot. So you're soaking that up for your other life as as an author, uh, as an That's author right. of, 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 what genre would you call them? Because they they feel like history, although it's history you've made up. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastical history, I guess yes. you could call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, and that's, that's, that's the reason for that. So you've really got it all going on. I don't know how you find the time to do everything, especially with being a lawyer. To, no, a trial lawyer. I mean, the prep involved in that must be incredible, you know? So um, yeah, that's great. So you've got all these things going on. You've got the podcast. It's called Real Perspective. What is next? for Michael Moray? Hmm. Well, I would say in the short term, we are trying to focus on making a short film in our precinct series. We're trying to get it bigger than before. We're trying to go and get someone to score it who, who's a friend of ours. Um, and so we're just trying to go and make that uh, like our centerpiece or showcase film. We try to make one every two or three years at this point. So that's kind of the focus. But then I have other ideas for books that I'm working on as well. Uh, we'll be in contact, Graham. And um, right. also just in general, I, I, um, I'm always thinking about storytelling. Uh, I, I'm always enjoying uh, reviewing movies that have come out. So 
Um, Real Perspective, it's going to keep on growing. We're going to try to go and introduce it to new people. And as some of us move out of our hometown and to other places, we're trying to spread the word to other people as well. And where can we find out more about you and Real Perspective? So Real Perspective is on SoundCloud. It's also on iTunes. As uh, as for me, um, I'm a writer, so you can go and find my works on Amazon primarily. And uh, you can see I had a previous book um, called Aurora War. And then I also have another book, the one that you narrated, Graham, called uh, The Ashen Prophecy. Which and is I'm a terrific book. book. That, well, that is just a great read. That If you like battles and knights and it, just great. And it never lets up. It, I forget how long it was, but it, was it about... 16 hours when I did the audio book? It, is it that it long? Was, it was 19 hours by the time you finished <laughs> the audio for it. But yeah, it just it's, it's never one. lets up. It just keeps giving it to you. I'm sorry I interrupted you, but it is a great book. Oh, that one's called The oh, Ashen no, Prophecy. No, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then there's another book that I'm working on as well. So you'll be able to go and find those on Amazon and Audible. And, uh, you know, just stay tuned for things in the future. I also want to work on a legal thriller eventually. But that's, that's just percolating in my brain right now. Well, I'm sure it'll be great. Real Perspective is at number 16 this week on the pod 20. 15. Counterclock. To tell the story of a crime, you have to turn back time. The latest episode is about park predators. Sometimes the most beautiful places hide the darkest secrets. 14. Today Explained. You're all killer, no filler, Monday to Friday, news explainer. 13. Dish. Nick Grimshaw and the chef Angela Hartnett talk about food, drink, entertaining, and more. 12. Shagged Married Annoyed. The only way Rosie and Chris Ramsey can have a conversation without being interrupted by a toddler or ending up staring at their phones is by doing a podcast. 11. The Reset Rebel. It's hosted by Joe Yule, and Joe, in the podcast, You meet amazing people who, like you, live on the island of Ibiza. The thing about the Reset Rebel is it's not, you know, two people sitting in a studio. I mean, probably more than three quarters of the episodes are out and about on the island in beaches or bars or cafes or, you know, weird and wonderful places that I ask the guest to choose a place that means something to them. And then we go there and record the episode because I think, you know... Of course, it sounds wonderful and very clean and delicious in terms of broadcasting quality to have something that's in a studio. But I think, you know, what are the people that listen to that podcast are probably going to be people that love Ibiza and maybe haven't been able to get there for quite some time. Um, And therefore, they want to, you know, they want to get a taste and they want to imagine like where you're sitting and what you're looking at and, you know, where you are rather than just sitting in a dark box like you are. (laughs) exactly yeah and who's been your favorite guest then god there's been so many there really has i mean 106 episodes but i mean i really loved meeting one of my uh dj heroes a man called john satrincha he um works or has done for the last almost 30 years um at one of my favorite beach club in uh, salinas called satrincha and his story of arriving to the island um, on a, like, a little bus and then basically having all of his records stolen, absolutely everything, and really having nowhere to live and running out of money and being pretty much destitute, and then suddenly getting offered that gig, which 30 years later, he's still playing sort of, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12-hour sets um, at the ripe old age of 50-something. 
um, I think is, yeah, a really interesting story. And it wasn't something that I really expected um, him to tell me about while we were having fish uh, for lunch in Cala, Calanova, a little beach shack. And he really told me like a lot of stuff about, you know, his mom and his relationship with her and really went, he didn't have any qualms about holding back about his story. He really went in um, to the to the deep, you know, dark realms of his entire childhood and all sorts of things. And I and I, I love that's what I love about doing that job. You know, you, some people just really don't have any um, desire to to hold back and be all guarded about stuff that's happened to them in their life. They're they're very happy to share that story of you know, rags to riches in his case. I mean, I don't think he's, you know, completely rich uh, these days. I think he's living in Bangkok. I think he, in the pandemic, got stuck in Thailand and decided to actually stay there. And I, I don't blame him in many ways because of, you know, the scenario, I think, of working in the summer, not working in the winter. Then what do you do with all that time that you've got on your hands in winter? You just spend all the money you've made in the summer. And it's, it's a kind of a weird cycle that exists in Ibiza of, being either on or off and then trying to make enough money in the win in the summer to get you through the winter. I mean, it's a crazy, um, it's a crazy escapade actually, this idea of um, seasonal work. So I think that's an interesting story to look at, you know, because if it wasn't for all the people having a, a summer house there and not living there all year round, then that, you know, that economy and idea just wouldn't exist because um, I was actually chatting to a lady that I just met here the other day and she lives in, uh, she's from Sweden, but she lives in Switzerland. And she said that her boyfriend in the pandemic moved in with her, but it meant that because he wasn't living in Sweden, he was forced by the government to sell his house and he couldn't keep it because they don't allow people to own property there that they don't live in. And I thought, wouldn't that be fascinating if something like that happened in Ibiza? Because then, you know, it wouldn't just be this millionaire's playground with all this empty property and nobody living on the island, which is the thing that really screws that place up, in my humble opinion, that there's all this empty, you know, all these empty apartments and um, holiday homes, and there's, no, there's nobody there. You know, I can walk down the beach most of the time um, in the winter, and I might not see anybody else there at all. Um, you don't get that most places, and I don't think that is what people imagine it to be like there. Um, yeah, because they've only been there at the height of the season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a magical thing. You know, it's a very peaceful place to to live apart from those sort of three or four months in the summer when it does go a little bit crazy. Yeah. It's a fascinating podcast. It's called The Reset Rebel and it's at number 11 this week on the pod 20. Into the top 10 now and at number 10, Freakonomics Radio. Discover the hidden side of everything with Stephen J. Dubner, co-author of the Freakonomics books. Episode 506 is called What is Sports Washing? And does it work? 9. Fox News Radio Hourly Newscast The latest news from the fastest-growing radio news network. 8. The Jordan Harbinger Show In-depth conversations with people at the top of their game. Number 7. Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend After 25 years at the late-night desk, Conan has never made a real and lasting friendship with any of his celebrity guests, so he started a podcast to fix that. One of his latest new friends is Jeff Goldblum. Number 6. Leading with James Ashton James brings together people from the top of very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. James, are great leaders born or trained? Well, I think 
think um, they're usually, tra- I think they're usually trained. I think there are some instances, you know, I have this, this book with these nine types in it, and obviously some of them are born. I have a chapter called Scions. This is kind of a chapter in defense of nepotism. These poor chaps who who were born into a family and the and the dad has already set up a, a big multinational company that, that one day, sadly, they're going to have to run, you know, poor them, small violin. Um, so they are obviously born into it. And actually, if you, if you look at that, that class, uh, and there might be uh, Rothschilds or Botines who run Santander or, or someone like the Warburton family um, in making bread. There's lots of examples of scions that do succeed generation after generation. So there's a, there's a particular um, there's there's sort of particular characteristics they have. But I think a lot of the time it's um, it's training. And I think the best I did some I did something that gathered together a few thoughts because what I've always been interested in is who's the boss. How do they get there? How do they stay there? Methods of motivation. So some of the stuff we're we're um, talking about. And so you draw that right back. So what did they do when they were 15 or 20? And I think what they didn't do generally is they don't have a plan. They don't set out with a piece of paper saying, I must be a CEO by the time I'm you know 40 or 50. They're generally the people who um, just launch into life. They're, they're probably in, you know above average in, intelligent um, and they just do things they enjoy. And then I think that is one of the that is one of the secrets. If you're doing something that you're really passionate about, then um, you have much better chance of of rising to the top. Mm. Does the Peter principle though create a glut of bad leaders? Um, because I know I've I've literally found myself in leadership roles just because I was the one that had the most experience in the radio station. And then all of a sudden I'm the program director. And a lot of the times I didn't even seek it out. And then when you get, well, the first couple of times it happened, I didn't know what to do. Hmm. <laughs> you know, And I just wonder if, if there needs to be more training done before putting someone into a leadership position. Well, I think generally companies haven't been that good at, um, mid-career training, on-the-job training and, and lifting people up. And, and there's figures about, you know, what the, um, you know, we all, uh, you know, it's been talked about at the moment now with a CBI, how do we get up UK's productivity? How do we invest more in R&D? And when we think of research and development, we always think about how do we get this new, um, this brilliant new invention from the, um, the science lab in the University of Oxford? And how do we, you know, sell this to the Americans and the, and the Chinese and so on. And actually, we forget about the D, which is development, which is bringing on your, your processes and, and investing in plants and actually, you know, bringing on your people at all levels of, uh, of the organization. So I think, yeah, longevity in itself shouldn't be um, the thing that gets you into the, the top job. I'm sure you did very well, Graham. Eventually um, I did, but obviously my first couple of goes at it, a couple of radio stations I ran, I know I made a lot of mistakes, but then, you know, later on everything was programmed director it was it was great the, the big problem i had usually was managing up and that was you know if i worked for someone who i <laughs> knew was an idiot or i when they say that i mean that with the greatest respect often people in radio who have come from a sales background which is a really important part of commercial radio probably the most important part uh, some of those people end up in jobs where they are in charge of people from the programming side of the business mm. and it's very difficult to communicate with them you know and this is you but, know where, where the problems start but i think that's i think there's something i, I mean i've identified this this type called sellers who and I there's there's some on the podcast and some in the book and um uh I think it's really interesting what 
discipline people come up through an organization from and then make it into the leader. And I think the ones that are really, so, that, so there's a, a, so many people have come up through sales and marketing. So what was it about, um, well, take Tim Davey now running the BBC, of course, in his, in his formative years, um, he was selling body stray at Procter and Gamble. Yeah. You know, he helped uh, rebrand Pepsi yeah. uh, and so on. And I think the way that these people come out of, whether it's a sales function or operational or, or finance, they're the ones that are, you know, have their eyes open, not just to the outside world, but also to other disciplines. They're the ones that 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 look to get other experience in other disciplines. They go sideways um, or whatever. They're also the ones that are, you know, leaders get a lot of luck as well. Yeah, yeah. I've worked, I've, you know, I've said, you know, I've worked for some some very poor leaders. I've worked for one in particular, I'm sure, as a sociopath. But I've also worked for some fantastic leaders who have just been brilliant. One of them was Duncan Campbell, who is now in charge of the Australian Radio Network, which is one of the biggest radio networks in Australia. But he was the regional program director when I was at 2CR, when it was the GWR group. And uh, that was very early on for me as a program director. And he did a brilliant thing. He said to me, you know, you're going to, he says, there are certain things that you're going to have to check with me first before you go ahead and do them. But if someone in the team asks you a question like that, and you know, you've got to check with me, don't say I've got to check with Duncan, just say, leave it with me. Because they have to know that you're the boss. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Well, and then he was replaced by another guy who was not a great leader and he said the absolute opposite to me. He said, make sure you tell them you've got to check with me. Well, he was more, I think he was just more insecure than Duncan was, but Duncan was yeah. fabulous. But there are huge, that, that, that leads to huge inefficiencies, doesn't it? Because every time someone at the top changes, yeah. then either everyone beneath them has to rethink and change their whole way of working or else all the personnel changes. Yeah. And it takes 18 months, two years to settle everything down and then the cycle starts again. Yeah. Uh, I ended up leaving that one because of uh, because of that situation because of, of basically poor leadership, but yeah, it's interesting and that managing up thing is sometimes I and I found myself whenever I got to, to these positions where it was a managing up situation, I just used to throw in the towel and leave and go somewhere else because I just couldn't be bothered with it. Um, you know, I can remember there was a show at a radio station I was at. We did a show live from Downing Street, from in front of number 10. And the presenter was still quite new to presenting. And I said to them, I said, look, you're going to be outside number 10. And they were challenging something that Theresa May had said. I said, when you say it, even if it's just an opinion, present it as if it's a fact and own it and don't back down, knowing that was the right way to go. Well, I, no, within minutes of me having that talk, Somebody more senior than me took him to one side and said, look, if you say anything controversial, make sure you say it's only your opinion and there are other... And I was like, what am I doing here? You know, I just can't be bothered with it. Is there a way to push through that? I mean, I... Um, I couldn't see a way out. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure there is. But I think there is. There's something about um, another category of, of leader who... who you see it in patterns with, in, when I look at CVs or interviewing people or whatever. People who've been exposed to the top brass early, it might be friends in high places thing, uh, Graham, they, they, they seem to prosper. So there's quite a, a number of CEOs who got to the top after being what you might call chief of staff or chief bag carrier or, uh, or whatever, or working in the office of 
Um, and they were in that environment. Yeah, I think when you're in that environment and you see, um, you see how well they, they effectively have that ready-made mentor. They see how they did it. They probably see from the top also how um, the organisation works because all these organisations they have their own culture and things. Things happen um, differently. I mean, someone I've just interviewed uh, this week is the chap that runs Mars Pet Care. Um, you know, eighty-five thousand staff. Everyone think everyone thinks Mars, by the way, is chocolate and chewing gum. Yeah, biggest division now is is pet food and vet surgeries. Um, whiskers, pedigree. It, it, it's it's you know, everyone got a dog in lockdown. So um, what I was interested in, he, he had a background um, selling chewing gum many years ago, but twenty-one years in Mars. So you know, how do you navigate that organisation? But you know, versus any other. So it's it's, it's really interesting. Um, and it help, and it helps to know founding family or you know carry the bag of the CEO for a bit. Yeah, leading with James Ashton, it's at number six this week on the Pod Twenty. Into the top five now, and at number five, my favourite murder with Karen Gilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. Karen and Georgia tell each other their favourite tales of murder and hear crime stories from fans. Four, morbid, a true crime podcast. A spooky podcast hosted by an autopsy technician and a hairstylist. Number three, the rest is politics. Former Downing Street spin doctor Alistair Campbell and failed politician Rory Stewart join forces from across the political divide. Two, crime junkie. If you can never get enough true crime, congratulations, you found your people. And at number one... The Ben Shapiro Show. News and information from the right of American politics. The Biden White House continues to struggle. And they have another problem, which is that the president is a walking corpse. And everyone knows this. The president of the United States, every night at about 4.30 p.m., they feed him a dinner from Denny's. They put a uh, matlock rerun on for him. He falls asleep in his chair and then they wheel him into the crypt and the door closes. And then, you know, every once every couple of months, they bring him out and they prop his body up on Jimmy Kimmel's couch and Jimmy Kimmel talks to the body and Joe Biden puts on his rictus grin and then he goes back into the crypt and then we all pretend that, that he's doing a great job if we are in the legacy media. Well, this provides sort of a problem because if you're trying to mobilize the American public, if you're trying to change hearts and minds, a, a corpse is a bad way to do it. Right? And it. See, the thing about El Cid, when you, when you prop a corpse up on a horse to go into battle, is that, that that corpse better have like an enormous amount of goodwill built up because they ain't building up goodwill being dead. And, and Joe Biden does not have an enormous amount of goodwill to spare at this point, considering that his approval ratings are down in the 30s. So what does that mean? It means you got to find somebody else to promote the message. And it can't be Kamala Harris because she is, as we have said, awful at this. Kamala Harris may be the worst single politician on a large stage in the United States in modern American history. She makes Hillary Clinton look like an absolutely charming, wonderful, magnetic human being, Kamala Harris. And so what are they going to do? They can't, they can't throw Joe Biden out there because, again, if you, if you prop him up at a 90-degree angle, there's a fairly good shot that he goes down like at a 180-degree angle. And Kamala Harris is pathologically incapable of saying anything sincere. She has a smugness on her face is just beyond compare. So what do you do? What do you? Well, you go find a popular actor and you have him talk about gun control. So the White House last week 
they, they tried to bring in a K-pop band to talk about anti-Asian discrimination in an attempt presumably to get young Asian voters to vote for an old white man who's no longer alive. And now they're bringing in Matthew McConaughey. Now, Matthew McConaughey seems like a nice guy. I got nothing against Matthew McConaughey. I, I'm, I'm just wondering why Matthew McConaughey? Like, I, I, why? now they say it's because he's from Uvalde, Texas. Okay, fine. Well, so are presumably tens of thousands of other people over the course of the last several decades. Why Matthew? The, the reason is because Matthew McConaughey is a, is a popular actor. Now, here's the thing. That doesn't translate over into politics. It just doesn't. There are a lot of people who have sort of popular followings in the acting community, and it does not translate over into, we now support your political agenda. Democrats seem to make this mistake an awful lot, and I'm not sure why. They seem to believe that if they grab a bunch of celebrities and put them on stage at the 2020 convention, for example, that magically this translates into popularity. Most famously, they did this in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, where they had an utterly stone-faced, charmless candidate, and they tried to kind of stick and move around the edges by bringing in Katy Perry and Elizabeth Banks and all of these celebrities. So now the the Biden administration is trying to do the same because I guess you, you work with what you got. So they bring in Matthew McConaughey to lecture Americans on gun control. And it's not particularly convincing. It's not particularly compelling other than the weird sight of watching a person who probably will play the president at some point actually standing in front of an actual White House emblem behind him. It's very weird to bring in actors. It just... Something strikes me as wrong about an administration where the president of the United States can't sit for an interview with anyone other than Jimmy Kimmel. So you have a president doing late night talk shows and you have an actor doing White House press conferences. That seems very odd to me. It just seems weird. The Ben Shapiro Show, number one this week on the Pod 20. And that's it for episode 110. Thanks to this week's guests, Joe Yule, Michael Moray, James Ashton, and Ben Shapiro. Next week, my guest is Lewis James from the podcast My Melodies of Life, which is a podcast all about video game music. In the meantime, you can watch extended video chats with my guests on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. What will happen on the podcast radio chart next week? Will your favourite make it to number one? You can influence the chart. Make a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. I'm Graham Mack, and I hope you can listen every Friday at 5pm and across the weekend on Podcast Radio. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.